This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome, everybody, to the Full Scale Outdoors podcast. I am Dale Luganville, your host. Thank you very much for joining me. Uh, I want a big thank you to all the listeners and subscribers. If you haven't subscribed yet, uh, please do. Uh, if, if you're stumbling around your app, whatever, wherever you're listening to this, it, it's kind of different depending on the app. And I think even Apple Podcasts have changed it a little bit. I think it's now called follow and not subscribe. So if you're on the app, you know, uh, Apple Podcast app, and you're looking for the subscribe button, I don't think it's subscribe anymore. I think it's follow. So whatever it is, whether it's on Podbean or Spotify, maybe it's just a plus symbol somewhere. Do me a big favor and click on that. You won't miss a single episode. Um, have it set to automatically download. It'll always be ready when you get a uh, when there's an episode ready for you to listen to. And if you don't want to listen to it, don't listen to it. But I still get the download, so I get credit for the download. <laughs> I think it actually says like unique listens to. There, there, there's a metric that kind of tells you if it was downloaded and not listened to, and uh, all that fancy stuff too. I don't look at my metrics too much, but regardless. Hit the plus button, the subscribe button, the follow button, whatever that thing might be. And uh, also, if you would, share it once in a while up on the social medias. I, I would really appreciate it. Tag some buddies that like, uh, that like to listen to Outdoor Podcast. And speaking of Outdoor Podcast, my guest today is the host of the Mediocre Alaskan Podcast. Um, you can find that. He's part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective, as am I. Uh, so you should be able to find that. Everywhere podcasts are found, go check him out. He has a real interesting perspective on a lot of different subjects. It's not just all about Alaska. He, you know, interviews people from all over too, as I do. Uh, but he does have a really interesting perspective because he is a resident of Alaska. And I found it incredibly interesting, you know, the progression of the different season. You know, when you go to Alaska, everybody thinks, you know, you go there in the summer for halibut and salmon, or maybe you go there in early fall for caribou, moose, and then bear in the spring, you know, stuff like that. But, you know, they're fishing for steelhead in February. Like, that's crazy. I had no idea. Uh, he's also a teacher, 
and a writer. He's got a book. He writes for uh, magazines. Uh, so a very well-rounded individual, and we had a great conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and it's the beauty of podcasts. I mean, without the podcast here, I never would have met this cat, and uh, I'm grateful for it. It was awesome. So you're going to like this one. Sit back and enjoy. This is the Full Scale Outdoors Podcast with Jeff Lund. Oh, here we go, boys. Go. Oh, I love that sound. a good one. Uh, I'm here with Jeff Lund. Welcome to the Full Scale Outdoor Podcast. Thanks for having me on, man. Yeah, absolutely. So you host the Mediocre Alaskan Podcast, part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective. Um, give us a give us a brief. Well, it doesn't have to be brief, I guess. Give us the oversight. Give us your give us your pitch. Okay. Well, um, you know, the outdoor industry is such a huge, huge uh, industry, and so many people are making content. A lot of people are going up to Alaska and making content videos and you know writing about their trips up there, which is awesome. It's so much fun to to read what uh, or view what people experience when they're up in Alaska. And so I figured, you know, there's, there was space for someone to do a podcast about what it's like to live during Alaska for the entire year. So if someone wanted a little bit insight about, Hey, what are they doing in January? You know, so talking about black ice and, and winter steelhead fishing and, and things like that and, and hunting. So, um, that's, that's kind of why I decided to, to enter this space with a mediocre Alaskan. The title mediocre Alaskan was because, you know, there are a lot of people who are, you know, trying to be the expert or the best at everything. And I just going to admit that I'm not the best at everything. And so it was just a matter of, <laughs> Hey, this is what happened. I don't have to keep up some sort of reputation. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to fail now, this last hunting season. I missed with my bow two days in a row on, on, on black tailed deer, um, and not have to be ashamed about it. And I think that's where a lot of people are at. You know, you have on one end, you have, you know, Randy Newberg, who's been hunting forever and, you know, then on the other end, you have someone who's never done anything. And then in this middle, yeah, that's just a lot of people who are still figuring it out, who still love it. You know, they're going to get frustrated at times. And so I wanted to, to provide a voice and amplify that sort of perspective, which I think is, is funny. I think it's fun and it relates to a lot of people. So that's why I started the podcast and um, there you go. I think that is something that people can get hung up on is the, um, I think we build up uh, probably unrealistic expectations the moment you decide to be a personality, for a lack of a better term, in in the outdoor industry, which even, even that term I know makes a lot of people throw up in their mouth. But um, it's <laughs> you know like oh I gotta I gotta kill something or I gotta be successful or I gotta be this and I gotta be that and I do uh, I think people appreciate the realness behind being the mediocre Alaskan or, you know, any host that's at least not trying to build themselves up to um, some unrealistic expectations. And honestly, I mean, even if you listen to some of these bigger names, 
they'll they they usually will fess up to a missed shot or they're not trying to I I think right. I think that's something that we as consumers kind of project onto them you know we just assume that they never miss a shot they've been doing it they're these pros that never you know like they have they're gonna have good and bad days they're gonna they're gonna make mistakes nobody's infallible you know i think we need to remember that and not even as people that are trying to be something in the industry but just in you know if you're just uh just somebody who likes to hunt and you like watching hunting videos or whatever you know keep that in mind don't you know, don't don't get too down on yourself. Obviously, practice and be as you know, take ethical shots and be as proficient as you can. But I wouldn't don't don't make that a point, uh, a tripping stone yourself. I guess you will. Yeah. Oh, there's a. I grew up reading Bill Evie and Patrick McManus, and it was obvious they were very proficient outdoors, but they chose to focus on the, the comical aspect of it and their failings. And it was just very refreshing mm -hmm. and a lot of fun to read. And so, you know, you kind of are what you eat, you are what you read and what you consume. And so that was just always kind of fun. And my, um, my, I write a, a column for the Juno empire and my outdoor column often about those sort of failings. And then, uh, for the podcast, it just seemed like an obvious thing to do. And, you know, go outside, do everything. You know, those guys did everything, still do everything, you know, well, you know what they can, um, but there's a lot of people that um, that can relate to that, and so that's why I wanted to to enter in that way. You so what is black ice? I, and we have black ice here in Minnesota, and that's usually what we refer to as like uh, later in the season when ice isn't really safe and it gets really dark. We're like avoid black ice, but what, I feel like it's a different. Uh, when you mentioned it, I think it's different. <laughs> Yeah. It was funny because you and I just recorded a podcast. <laughs> you were on my podcast, and we talked about jargon right. being very important to show <laughs> you kind of know what you're talking about. But then if you don't explain it, it can be confusing. And so there I, get, I go and do it. It's pretty much the same thing. In Southeast Alaska, we get a lot of rain. And so our, our winter temperatures, this is Southern Alaska. I, I live in Ketchikan. And so we'll have a lot of days where it's 41 and rainy or 37 and rainy. So during the day, it rains, but overnight, it gets cold enough to freeze. And so you just have this sheet of ice and you can't see it. Um, you know, it's there. Sometimes you can kind of see like a little bit, it kind of looks like the stars are on the road. And so you know that there's black ice, but some of those corners um, or stars that are flat and don't drain, they'll freeze overnight. Driving to work in the morning, you really got to be aware of, of the black ice because it just, it just hits. And man, you just... You have grip, you're going fine, and then all of a sudden you lose control. So that can be pretty tough. So, yeah, so you're referring to black ice. That's, on, uh, that's black ice. It sounds on like the roads. I yeah, gotcha. Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I see. I, that that one's on me because we do. We have both. We have the 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 black ice, which you get on the roads, you can't tell it's there, and it's super slippery. But we also refer to like as far as ice fishing goes, or <clears throat> just safe ice. When you get that black okay. ice in in late in late winter is very unsafe you know, like avoid black ice but so i i know the, the way it was just the way you said it i was like is that an outdoor reference or is that a, i didn't know if that was like <laughs> we look for that that's when the trout fishing is really good or i, I so okay got that cleared up so it's a commonality it's, yeah, it's not, dangerous not slippery roads well, yeah got it <laughs> 
What uh, you know? What I do find <laughs> fascinating though is for someone who lives in Alaska year round, you know, most everybody else sees Alaska as this destination, sportsman's paradise. Um, how how is that like year round? As far as like, are, are there is there something to do all of the time? As 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 far as I'm aware, like I know the seasons can get like when when you can fish and when you can't fish can get kind of convoluted or mm, that's the right word but you got to really know what you're going for and when yeah well you know everywhere has a brochure right like you can repeat the best parts of any part of the country if you live in california and wherever there's always something to do minnesota there's always something to do but it's a matter of whether or not you're going to do it or not and so the year-round Alaska program, there is something to fish for or hunt or trap every every month out of the year. So starting off with January, you got winter steelhead, uh, you got trapping wolf, mink martin. February, you have uh, some steelhead. March, things start to, at least southern southeast Alaska, catch a can. It starts to thaw a little bit. We have some late spring storms, um, but you know, you're shrimping. Uh, April definitely starts spring steelhead fishing you know, setting out shrimp pots, uh, right after school, which is a lot of fun. I got a, a, a boat in the Marina. That's maybe a quarter mile from my house. So just go down there, jump, jump in, go out there and, and check the pots. Um, May, you can start picking up some, some King salmon. Uh, the trout fishing starts to get really good and you still have steelhead. And then the summer is just a fishing bonanza, halibut, King salmon, um, out in the ocean and they start coming into the rivers. And then August 1st is the beginning of, um, blacktail season, and uh, mountain goat um and they would also had spring bears so i mean there's it's just it's just crazy and once june first starts that's when things get almost like out of control and that's where everybody is coming up to do the fishing content uh, august 1st is kind of the the date where everyone's going up there for caribou for um you know the hunting stuff and that goes up until um until october uh, but the season for deer in southern southeast Alaska, where I'm at, it starts August 1st and doesn't end until the end of December. Oh, wow. So we have a really long season for deer. Um, in the unit that I live in, I can get four deer. They're all uh, over-the-counter tags. You just go, you show up, you say, here's my Alaska. Um, I've been a resident for however long, but if you have residency for a year, you can get two bear tags for free. You get four deer tags for free. Um, there's a a draw mountain goat tag that's pretty close to catch cannon, which is pretty awesome. Um, but no one ever draws it because it's, we don't do a point system in Alaska. Um, so it's, it's fair because everybody has the same shot, but no one really has a shot because so many people put in for it, but I can also get an over the counter, uh, mountain goat permit. It's just a different area. So I'd have to take my boat out there and I would have to anchor and then hike up the mountain. So, um, there's always just an incredible amount of stuff to do. And, it's kind of overwhelming and almost confusing because it's so different that people are used to hearing, you know, just that way you can get four deer and it's free. Like what is going on there? It's crazy. That is crazy. I did not know that for resident, but that's enough to get people to move there. I think, um, but Dude. then the black ice in January is enough to get people to not move there, right? Bro, bro we got black ice in January, Minnesota. I don't know. I got to pay for every single tag I want. Um, but the, uh, yeah. not that the tags are that ridiculous in Minnesota's for residents go, but they're they're more than free. 
<laughs> I can tell you that. <laughs> how about yeah. you still? How about doll sheep? Is that still? Is that a paid thing for a resident? Um, yeah, you can get over the counter doll sheep. Like anything as a resident, you can get over the counter for free. Um, you pay it? for your license. Oh, okay. So you just have your tags. You just pick up the tags. The hunting license is just a bra. That's just a blanket. It's good for yeah, pretty much anything. And you just got to get a um, site tag for it. Yeah, you just. Um, a lot of the stuff is is over the counter. Some stuff is permit, and so it it takes like you can go to just your like Tongass Marine is like the local place you go there. You can pick up your bear tags, you can pick up your deer tags, you can pick up your duck stamps. Um, but then if you do a registration hunt, it's still free, but you have to go to the fish and game, and then um, there's a certain amount of those. But uh, for the most part, there's almost an unlimited amount for for residents. Um, but the problem ends up being if I'm in Southeast Alaska, I can do a dull sheep hunt, but it costs some money to fly up there because me flying up to do a dull sheep hunt would be like traveling from Florida to like Missouri. Um, and then that's just to get to Anchorage. And then I got to drive out somewhere. If it's, you know, if it's a, if it's an over the counter area, that means there's going to be more people using it. And so where are the access points and can I get up there? And then do I have enough time to, to do all that and then find a legal Ram and then take it. So, um, it sounds a lot easier than it actually is when it, when I say, Oh, just over the counter tag, I can get it. No problem. Or I can do a registration. No problem. Um, the best hunting areas are still going to be, you have to draw the best caribou is a draw. The best uh, doll sheep is a draw. So, um, the best brown bear, well, maybe the best brown bear is, is a draw, but a lot of that stuff for residents is, is over the counter. And if you have the wherewithal to, or the means or the, you know, logistical planning to be able to do it, you can, you can do it. And so that, that really is the benefit of living here. And so when you talk about how bad and how cold and how dark it is during December, January, February, like, you know, just knowing what's coming for you in the positive realm as far as hunting and fishing opportunities really make it worth it. There's moose around every tree though, right? They're just everywhere. <laughs> I grew up on Prince of Wales Island, which is the third <laughs> largest island in the United States. It has over 900 miles of coastline. And it's ironic because when you think of Alaska, you think of moose, you think of caribou, but that island only has black bear and black-tailed deer. Hmm. There's no moose there's moose on the surrounding islands. There's no brown bear, which is kind of nice. So when you're hiking around, you don't have to worry about them. <laughs> yeah. But it's pretty funny. A huge island, but none of the like stereotypical Alaska big game. But where I live in Ketchikan, um, there are there are some moose in the area um, on the mainland, and then same thing with uh, with brown bear. But you know, go I further think, north, moose. I think a lot of people when they think of Alaska, um, well, I think they have a lot of predisposed notions about it. And the one thing I don't think they realize is just how big Alaska is. Like it's enormous. So even mm. even to the point of when you, you know your winters are long there, you know everybody's familiar with that. But the southernmost part of Alaska and the northernmost part of Alaska are going to experience. Even that element's going to be varying by quite a bit. Yeah, and that's one of the difficult things about living there is you kind of kind of choose your spot, and it's almost like there's three or four different states in. So Southeast Alaska, it's it's the own thing. Like yeah, you know, it's it's very difficult to get out of there. It's just very expensive to get out of there. So you kind of run your 
your king salmon out in the ocean program you run your steelhead in the river program and then black bear and deer and then you know if you really want to work at it then you can get a brown bear and moose um if you're up north i got some buddies live in fairbanks it's brown bear black bear caribou um and then she fish and, and white fish and things like that. So it's so different. You'd think it's a different state, but you know, like you said, it's so vast and so huge that the, that geographical difference is going to just, it, it changes climate, it changes uh, terrain. So a lot of different opportunities in different parts of the state. How did you end up in Alaska? Cause you're not originally from there, correct? No, uh, my family moved up in the, um, when I was five, they're both uh, teachers and my brother's three years older than me and so because he was eight i was five and they're like well teachers make pretty good pretty good money up there so if we're going to do this adventurous you know life change let's do it now while the kids are young and so you know all my all my years growing up i was in i was in alaska did all my school up there um so yeah just growing up going down to the river and you know the town of Klawak had uh, about 700 or so people my high school was was 65 14 in my graduating class and there are some people who say well you know my school is about the same size but (laughs) being on an island in southeast alaska when you you're not connected by road to anywhere else you know you definitely get a feeling of of isolation there was no the only way we left the island growing up was for basketball trips and cross country and so we'd we'd take boats for a couple days or we'd take uh you know little float planes so two float planes per, per per team that's crazy. And yeah. And so we'd be, we'd be gone for a couple of days. We'd leave on Wednesday and, uh, you know, we'd get there, we'd play Thursday night, Friday night, then we'd fly home Saturday or Sunday. And sometimes because the cost was so astronomical, you'd, you'd plan like six games. So you'd visit three different towns on the same trip. My senior year, we did that and we were gone for 14 days. It was, we got, uh, played Yakutat first and then we went down to, um, yeah, that's like 500 miles north, but took Alaska Airlines to, for, to there. And then I got stuck there because of weather, obviously. It's going to happen during the winter. And then went to Skagway, played two games there. Then went down to Gustavus, played two games there, got stuck again. But, <laughs> you know, six games in, in 10 days, wow. gets come home after 14 days. I mean, you, you talk about smelly high school kids, right? And then you add on the fact that there's six games, no no wash, like your uniform is standing up by the time Oof. game three comes around, you know, but you're just, you're sleeping in the gyms. It's just, it's, 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 it's really fun in a weird sort of Alaska way, but that's just the norm, you know, that's just what you do. Um, yeah, the, it's pretty the, fun. The soccer moms in suburbia, lower 48, think they got it bad and running around. They they don't have to hop on a, rely on a bush pilot to keep their kids alive. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, when when people go up to Alaska, one of the things they like to talk about or focus on is the bush pilot, right? And this this bush pilot with their, you know, very very skilled, but you know, kind of humorous, dark humor. You know, they they earn and they really learn how to be great pilots during the winter. Like, there's no joking around, chumming Oof. around with the kids much. It's like I got kids on the flight here, right? They, these aren't clients from down south who I can tell these stories and like these kids aren't impressed. They just want to go play a basketball game, so. We see a different side of the bush pilots when uh, when we're traveling in the winter for sports. But um, and then coaching, same thing. It was weird to be on the other side of it um, when I first moved back to to Ketchikan, and uh, you know, 
coaching just be like okay i, I when you're on the when you're on the boat this is where the kids go and if there's going to be mischief it's going to be here but i'm on the authoritative side now and this is going to be a little different but it's it's just a lot of fun you can have great opportunities for um just make connections with people and friends and you know we'd go to some towns and we would stay at the school in the gym or or in a classroom or you know sometimes we'd stay get housed out by people in the community so you know you go to Juno for for a cross country race and then you're staying in the home of of someone who's on the Juno cross country team hmm. you know so they'd house out you know two or three kids and you know it's just kind of what you do in that that sort of rich welcoming community because the Juno people know that if there's a cross country meet in Ketchikan they're going to have to get housed out and so you know you make these friendships with these kids from other or these families from other schools that that put you up and you and your buddy are staying in this random house in petersburg these people who decided to house you and you know you got to be respectful and um it's just interesting just as such a different it's hard to even describe and i'm sure i'm talking so fast about stuff that's so crazy it's hard to understand but uh, uh, yeah just i think i'm tracking uh, I, I think it sounds i think it sounds amazing it'd be a, a, um quite an interesting and amazing sense of community even though it like traveling large distances i mean you're not that's an experience for not getting down here at all. I think that's probably uniquely Alaskan, yeah. <laughs> especially yeah. as you're on an it island. Is, it is a lot of fun, um, just like from that connective standpoint where you have relationships with people that, you know, anytime you're going to this town, you're staying with this family because their kids stayed at your house, you stay at their house. It's just such a, a thing that you would, the liability of, of doing that down south would just be not even considered you know if you're in la you're not going to go you know take a bus somewhere get housed out at someone else's house like right. you know, it's just it's impossible everywhere else but it's a necessity in in alaska and there's a lot of those things that just make communities better even within just things that you have to to do to live there that make it pretty special you know, getting through the winters together high school travel uh, even hunting and fishing you know just it's all a little bit different and a little bit unique and it can make things super complex, but it can also make them very, very rich and, and rewarding. I imagine your freezer is well stocked with wild game. Well, remember I'm mediocre, so it's <laughs> less stocked. Less stocked. Um, currently, it it's 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 okay. Um, I went out a couple. Um, days before I came down here, I'm in here in, in uh, Laramie, Wyoming. My, uh, my wife is getting her PhD from the university of Wyoming. So we're down here now. Um, that's opened up some hunting opportunities. So my freezer has a little bit of mule deer left over from a hunt in Wyoming last October. It's got caribou from a caribou hunt in March. Um, and then it's got some halibut. Um, after our, our, we got married in June and then after our honeymoon, we uh, we did some halibut fishing with some friends, and so we got some halibut, caribou, and uh, and mule deer. So That's... it's not bad, but it, it's it, it needs to be addressed. <laughs> it needs to be addressed. It's getting a little little thin. Um, so how long are you, or when are you headed back to Alaska? Head back to twenty eighth, and then um, that'll give Abby uh, a. a good chunk of time to be able to get some work done when i'm not here uh, bothering her to go uh <laughs> camping and and hiking and, and she loves to do all that stuff too but you know there's there's work that has to be done too so uh i'll head back and then um 
either do a, a mountain goat hunt or a deer hunt or something like that, or start uh, chipping away at some of the salmon, and then she'll come up in August and we'll do a. You're um, a newlywed, aren't you? Am I, am I uh, remembering that correctly? Yeah, I just got married. Uh, um, I proposed on a deer hunt last uh, August, and then um, we got married on on June twelfth. So how romantic! <laughs> <laughs> Is that yeah. typical think, Alaskan? Think- it takes a certain type of woman to appreciate the uh, misery of a hike up um, up some of these mountains that don't have trails, and then to uh, to you know we I, I shot the deer, we split it up uh, in the packs, and then uh, when we we're about ready to start hiking down, I was like, all right, here it is, I gotta propose, and so I just got on the knee and and proposed, and she said yes, which was good because. Um, we're up on a mountain. Right? <laughs> <laughs> if you had, say uh, no, I'm leaving you here. <laughs> yeah, we had a hike back down to the bikes, then uh, we had a um, a six mile bike ride back to the boat, and then an hour and a half boat ride back to town. So it would have been kind of uh, miserable and quiet uh, had she said no. But I knew she was going to say yes, so right. it was all right. Yeah, well, that's that's a pretty unique experience. That's pretty that's pretty cool. You could have you could have reached in, grabbed the heart. Like I give you my heart. No, that's a little. Yeah. Oh, maybe that might have been a little, little too much. Little much. <laughs> let's just see how. Let's see how extreme she really is. Yeah. See. Yeah. I'm sure there's there's like Alaskan and there's like that, which uh, <laughs> I don't know what that is. Uh, uh, twisted, I think. Probably yeah, yeah. borderline psychotic. Yeah. yeah. Probably. You know, I was just recently. Uh, I went back and I watched. Uh, an older episode of Meat Eater because I was talking about it with somebody and it was an episode where he was up at their hunting camp in Alaska. He went up there for bears. Mm-hmm. But the thing that stuck out stuck out in my mind was the seafood. Like, and you you'd mentioned this, like throwing out shrimp, shrimp, shrimp traps, and mm-hmm. you know catching salmon or whatever. It's like that. There's probably not a lot of people, and maybe I'm wrong about this, traveling to Alaska in May. But for me, the idea of a spring bear hunt mixed in with being able to get fresh seafood with the the shrimp, Dungeness crab, mussels, that looked like a trip of a lifetime to me. I'm like, I want to do that bad. But yeah. how do you, you know, I don't know how I would go about doing that. Like, how do you find a VRBO on the coast that has a boat and traps ready for you to use? I don't know if that's even a thing. <laughs> yeah. That's the meat eater and, and, you know, Randy Newberg and those guys that have come up and done shows. They've shown like a different dimension to what it is. And it's just revealing another part of the lifestyle where people think that it's just about, you know, you hunt your spring bear and then you catch king salmon and then you hunt your, your black tailed deer. But there's so many other things in the, opportunity to go out you know shrimping every day or every other you know depending on how long you want your pot to soak you know that's just a a thing that people are really fascinated about that didn't know that oh it's that easy like you can do that right there when i had some friends up for for the wedding we'd go out and we'd check the shrimp pots and it's you know a seven minute run from from the dock it's just right there it gets pretty picked over so you don't get you know gallons and gallons of shrimp but you know you're getting enough for you know, two or three meals for three or four people each time you go check them every couple of days. So um, that just is super appealing to a lot of people to be able to do that. But yeah, you're right. It's if you if you get a, a, a Airbnb, like it's not coming with with a skiff and, <laughs> right. and shrimp pots and things right. like that. And, you know, some of them even say, "Hey, do not bring fish into the house because you have people who go out there and oh you know, leave 
yeah, just terrible. So, um, yeah, but I, yeah, it's, it's, if you go to some of the self-guided places, sometimes you'll be able to have, you can, you know, stay at the, stay at the place and they have a, a boat that you can, that you can use self-guided and you can go out there and set, uh, set shrimp pots and, and crab pots and do all that sort of stuff. So there are those opportunities, but it is pretty tough. You know, it's, it's not so good that anybody can go up there, catch big king salmon, catch a bunch of halibut, get shrimp, get crab. You know, it's where um, Ranella's cabin is in Prince of Wales. Is it, It's a pretty isolated spot, and so they have a lot of – there's not a lot of competition for the shrimp. So anytime you set the pots, it's you're going to be – you're going to be in good shape. But, you know, just like anywhere else, there's there's pressure and there's people in, in the catch can area. So shrimping's not as good as it was. The crabbing's not as good as it was. And – um, the fishing's not as good as it was the hunting, same thing, but you know, it's still compared to other areas. It's still unbelievable, which is why people come up and think, I can't believe that you can do this. It's yeah. It, 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 looks, it looks like a paradise to me. I was like, well, watching that episode or I should say rewatching that episode. I was just like, Oh my God, this, I want to do this. But to touch on what you said there, it's like, it's not easy. Can't just go out and do it. And like, as I was watching it, thinking I would like to do this, I was also going, you wouldn't know. I wouldn't know where to place a trap. I don't know what depth to set for shrimp. I don't know where to set a pot for Dungeness. I don't know. You know. I mean, I guess the the blue mussels seem pretty self-explanatory. You can see those at low tide. I think I can figure that one out. But outside of that, it's like well, I don't know where to where to go. Like even if I had access to a boat in the pots, I wouldn't know what to do with it. Yeah. And then you're paying gas, you know, a lot of the stuff can be super expensive. And so the lifestyle looks awesome, but you can't be spending $120 in gas every two days. You know, that that's going to be extremely, extremely expensive, especially with the, the cost of living. You're paying, you know, 450 for gas, you're paying 450 for a gallon of milk. Um, and so, and you know, you get more rural, it gets even worse, you know, $6 right. for a gallon of, well, of milk. So it becomes less about it's fun that we get to go out and get shrimp and crab and, and bear and deer and caribou and everything. But in some ways that's, that's a necessity to sustain you because you can't, you know, beef up there is, is super expensive too. So yeah, I bet. it's almost a necessity to do these things, but as efficiently as possible, because again, you can't afford to be buying a whole bunch of new um, shrimp pots and then setting the shrimp pots and the gas it takes to get out there. And it's, it can get, pretty expensive so you got to find that that balance of i can afford to do all these things um because i'm gonna you know get food that maybe makes it worth it because i don't have to buy as much from the store but that's kind of the game it's how much can i hunt and fish so that i don't have to participate in any of the 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 meat section at the store right just some canned stuff if i need to get some um get some greens got to have those and then uh you know everything else you're just eating from stuff that you've been able to to harvest I never really thought about it before, but is there is there any beef production in Alaska? Uh, in I think it was the 30s as part of the part of the New Deal that uh, FDR had, um, they transplanted farmers um, from you know the Dust Bowl up into the Matnuska, the Matsu Valley, which is the Palmer Wasilla area, which is north. Uh, east of, of Anchorage. And so they have just big valley. And with those really, really long summers, they were able to have dairies um, okay. and they were able to have cattle. And so you do have an element of that. I think Matt Nuska made just went out of business recently. And so it had maintained for all these years, but um, it just ends up being super, super expensive. So some of those Northern areas where it's, it's flat, it's dry and you get those long 
warm seasons um, with tons of light. Like you can have, you have crops, you have farming. If you're landing in Anchorage and you're coming in and you're looping around, you kind of see like, wow, that looks like that's farmland. Like that's what, what's going on here. But that's, <laughs> yeah. um, there's definitely opportunities for that um, in that area. It's a little bit wet in Southeast Alaska, but people do, people do some, um, some crops, things like that. But as far as, as cattle goes, uh, your beef is, is going to be Matanuska Valley would be the best opportunity. But at this point, most of that stuff is, has gone away and it's just a matter of shipping up the stuff from, from down South, but preferably getting it yourself in the form of moose caribou, big game. Hmm. I think I'd be a, I'd be a hunting and fishing fool up there. I think I'd almost have to just go into the guide business. Cause I just want to do it all the time anyways. I mean, yeah. If you're a guide, you don't really get to do it. You know, people no, have talked I, I about get that. Be a fishing guide, but you know, as a teacher, like the last thing I want to do during the summer is teach people how to fish. You know, right. like it's my time to to have some fun. But uh, you know, I I have some former students who are fishing guides, and they just love it. You know, they just love the they're being out there and the expression on people's faces. And I'm sure you feel it when you're doing your 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 geese hunting and your bass, your or your 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 guiding that just that look at me when the biggest bass they've ever caught, you know, and they get the, the snow geese and just that excitement, you know, it's got to feel really good to be able to provide that or help people uh, get to that point. Yeah. I think to be a successful guide, like you have to have that guide mentality of you don't have to be the one catching the fish or shooting the bird or doing the whatever. Uh, and your, your enjoyment is coming off of watching other people experience it. You know, it's not that I don't still enjoy reeling in a bass myself or shooting a, a bird myself. Of course I do. Um, but as cliche as it sounds, I get a far greater rush watching somebody shoot their first ever snow goose or Canada goose or whatever it might be or catching a, a fish. You know, like it's I've done those things like, yeah, shooting my first one and catching my first one. Those are all great. And those are still bucket item lists for me is things that I haven't done, you know, fish I haven't caught, things I haven't shot, things I haven't eaten. Those, those are all things I want to experience in life. But once you've done them, you've done them. But the good mm -hmm. thing about being a guide is you get to experience somebody's firsts all the time, like yeah. day in and day out. Now that's, I think that's pretty special. That's yeah. a pretty special thing. Try not to that. take it for granted. How did, um, so teacher, journalist, you have your column. How did that lead into a podcast? Like what was like, when did you first start thinking, I'm going to try a podcast? Um, as a, as a columnist, you, you tell the story of, you know, kind of what you did. And I'd done some freelance writing, did some features about other people, but there's always this, the writer has so much control over the message that is that is put out there and it just comes down to the discretion of the journalist, what's important and what's not. And what I like about podcasts is that the whole context is there. Like all of it is there. It's not a matter of I'm taking 10,000 words worth of conversation and I'm paring it down to, you know, a 2000 word article, which, you know, leaves so much context and so much other potential meaning out there. I'm picking and choosing what's important, what's not with the podcast. All of it is there and listening to some podcasts. It was pretty fun. And then, you know, thinking, Hey, you know, I have a unique opportunity here to tell people what it's like to live in Alaska year round. 
Um, if they want to get the awesome outdoor content and watch the videos and read the magazine articles about people who come up to visit, you can absolutely get that. But if you're interested about what a local is doing steelhead fishing in, in, in February, then that's awesome. You know, like down south, a lot of people kind of go on the same cycle. Everyone's talking about shed hunting and everyone's talking about um, turkey hunting. And then it goes in a very predictable sort of way. Well, you know, there could be a, a market for people wanting to know what that season looks like for someone who lives in Alaska. So I wanted that um, in addition to writing about it, also just this, you know, talking to actual Alaskans. So um, here's an Alaskan talking to another Alaskan about, you know, what's going on. And so, um, but also the freedom to talk to about whoever I want to. You know, if I want to talk to a, a buddy in Wyoming about mule deer hunting, I'll talk about that too. Just that freedom. You know, I don't have to pitch to an Alaska magazine. Hey, can I write a story about mule deer hunting? They're going to say no. It's like, you know, if I want to talk to to Dale from Minnesota, like let's get him on the podcast, man. Let's talk about whatever. So the freedom to do whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted. And then, you know, talk about maybe something that's doesn't get talked about a lot. And that's that year round stuff in Alaska, just a, it seemed uh, pretty obvious, and so I jumped at it. That element of being able to talk about whatever you want, it was incredibly appealing to me as well, coming from a radio background where you're very regimented uh, for the most part on what you can say and what you can't say, and obviously language is part of that. And if you've listened to enough of my episodes, you know that I don't, I don't really – censor myself <laughs> at mm -hmm. all especially if the beers are flowing it can it can get pretty colorful pretty quickly um but i felt that there was a market for that too you know the outdoor industry had been so squeaky clean for so long but then you'd go out and do those things and with your buddies you're like this is the farthest from squeaky clean <laughs> i've ever seen so yeah. it's a little to me it's like i felt like the fishing and hunting shows are a little disingenuous you know like this isn't real life like maybe it is for some people but it, it's not for my circle and you know so from my podcast i was like i'm not going to go out of my way i'm not going to try to be the howard stern of outdoor <laughs> programming but i'm not gonna you know I, i'm not gonna try to self-regulate either if uh, you know an mm -hmm. f-bomb f-bomb slips out an f-bomb slips out it's, it is what it is it was because you, you're not you're not sensing yourself in the field you know yeah i mean some people i mean not everybody talks that way but yeah. i certainly do yeah the content that existed before podcasts was video and then article and you can't really write an article for a magazine about a hunt somewhere in which like nothing happens. Like there is a there's an element of pressure to be able to make it happen so that you have pictures. You can't just have four B-roll pictures and then this article about how oh, yeah and we, then we didn't see anything. Like that's not going to sell. Like the advertisers aren't going right. to like that. And the same thing with with video. Like if you have seven or eight um, episodes in a series or in a season, like you got to have some success. So the the podcast has just been able to open up voices for so many people and bring this authenticity so you can have that expert level production the people who are professional hunters to go around and have you know seven or eight elk tags and so oh we didn't get our montana elk this year and sometimes it's it's okay because it's not really about the hunting and you know in the back of your mind well when you have four other tags you know that might say <laughs> that it's going to be a little bit different you know you can hear from the person who has one tag and this is my draw and this is 
oh my gosh, here's what I'm doing to lead up to it. And you know, I'm, I'm, I'm e-scouting and I'm trying to talk to people about, you know, how to do this. And then you get there and there's the success or there's the failure, but you, you can kind of follow in this, you know, unedited lead up to the hunt. And if you, if you listen to some of those podcasts and you can, you know, it's, it's pretty exciting to see what a normal person is doing who just happens to have the reach because they use these, these free or these low cost ways to, to bring that content to you. It's, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. And I think a lot of the humanity and stuff that has made podcasts so uh, popular, that connection that people have is in my opinion, like in the field, it's the in-between stuff, you know, obviously if there's, well, just use duck hunting. If the, if you're out duck hunting or goose hunting and the birds are working your spread, you're not having a conversation, right? You're, everybody's quiet and they're ready to do the thing. And it's the downtime in between where the conversations happen. It's the downtime in between where you're, you know, holding your gut and crying because you're just, you're laughing so hard like that, that stuff which I think is what binds us as as sportsmen, as a community. That that happens in the in between. That happens, you know, even in the failures. Like if you don't, you know, you go for a week long hunt and you don't punch a tag, but I bet you had fun for seven days. I bet mm-hmm. I bet there was some jokes told and some stories told. And I don't. To me, that that's the good stuff. I mean, the actual harvesting of an animal, like that's that's the smallest piece of the the whole experience. Yeah. I mean, it is a pretty important part. And like, that's the reason why we're out there. Um, but yeah, the whole everything. And that's kind of funny when, when you start telling stories about Alaska and anytime you're watching a video, there's that, that, you know, standard B roll shot of fueling up the truck, right? Right. Where here yeah, it is, yeah. You're lifting yeah. a thing and putting it in there. But you know, in Alaska, southeast where you don't have a lot of driving opportunities it's all your boat like that shot is leaving the dock like oh oh interesting i never really thought about how you get to the hunting grounds and that starts with you taking a boat somewhere and then are you going to anchor are you going to pull up to an old forest service dock and are you tying up there and then are you you're taking an old forest service road are you walking are you taking a bike like it's just so interesting and so different now that's pretty cool going back to that episode of meat eater not to keep bringing that up but um it's just like when he's in the canoe and he's going through the i don't, I don't know what you'd call it they're like fjords like <laughs> where it's just like vertical rock rock faces on either side and then you know he's just out there looking for bears like what a, what a unique experience like mm-hmm. you know bear hunting here in minnesota we don't have spring bear hunt we just had the fall hunt and we're so heavily wooded that it's all bait it's you you have yeah. to set a bait and and sit in a stand and and wait so it's it's a lot like our deer hunting same there's no there's very little spot and stock hunting of any kind going on in minnesota um just the dense trees and i mean we do have farmland but even then you're not the visibility isn't there to spot and stock anything really yeah. um which brings up a whole different thing i'm not going to go down that rabbit hole i was going to talk i was going to talk about wade into the the kind of negative connotations that hang around bear baiting, but uh, that's another subject for a different time. Um, <laughs> yeah. Quite, well, quite it, simply it's put, new... it's the only way we could do it. It's the only, it's the, yeah. literally the only way in Minnesota that we could effectively manage the population. Yeah. If, 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 and it, 
interior Alaska, it's like that too, because you don't have the beaches. You can't go, your spring bear is not finding those, those grass shoots and those mussels because they, they don't exist. And then, so you have to, you have to bear bait. It's too dense. And then there's actually three ways in Southeast Alaska you can get them. The first one is that, that spring sort of on the beaches. Um, and then you can get, um, sit on a river in the, when the salmon are in the, in the late summer and the fall, or you can go up and you can get, um, uh, when they're eating the berries up on the mountains. So those are the kind of the three non-bait ways that you can get bear. And so it's sometimes fun in the fall to go up in the mountains in the Alpine. And then you're looking for these bears that have been eating berries and that's pretty fun. Um, but then of course the, the bait too. So you don't really have that, those different opportunities in, or those consolidation of the animals or that terrain where you can spot and stock in a lot of other areas, which is really makes Southeast Alaska unique. But you know, Minnesota, interior Alaska, you just can't do that. No, it's impossible. I, the spring bear thing kind of fascinates, fascinates me in that I would assume a fall bear is going to be much fattier than a spring bear. Like as far as table fare is concerned, would you would prefer a fall bear? Yeah? Or am I wrong there? It's you are what you eat, right? And so if you have uh, bears who are eating dead salmon – like that they are going to smell like that so when you cut it open that fat smells like rotting salmon um and so the fall bear is like people come up to spring to get a black bear because you have to harvest uh both the the hide and the meat in spring but the meat's going to taste much better even though it you know hasn't been eating much except for like grass um or if you can get the alpine bear steve ranella had a and an alpine bear um, episode a couple of years ago where he got one that had been eaten on berries and you, you know, when he rendered down the fat, it's, it smelled like blueberries. Oh wow! So the only fall bear that you'd want to get would be something that's, that's in the alpine. It's going to be eating berries. Um, cause that's what the fat's going to be made of. Um, so if you get a fall bear that you've shot down by the river, that meat's going to be, it's going to smell rank. As soon as you cut it open, you're going to just going to smell, um, the fat that smells like, like rotting salmon. Yeah, that doesn't sound very appealing at all. <laughs> no, no not so much no i'll take the blueberry bear though that sounds that sounds pretty yeah. amazing that sounds good so yeah. spring bear the flavor wise is better even though they might not have as much fat but are they still fairly fatty even in the spring is there like you still gonna be able to render down some lard or no that's some um that's really not you know if, if you're getting a spring bear and you want the meat then you're going to be going for the for the meat you're not going to be looking for the fat necessarily to render down there's not a ton of of locals who who want to get a spring bear um some people will but um you know it's just kind of you're getting a lot of of meat that it just isn't as good as as your your blacktail um so if you can get four deer like you're going to go for four deer and you sure. can get all the salmon that you can want so you're going to kind of prioritize those things over <laughs> a bear especially if you know if you have to take care of the hide and the meat then you have this hide that you got to do something with and you know, if you already have the rug, then some of the locals like it's not worth the cost of of having to go through all that stuff for meat that's not bad. Um, so you see a lot of locals who were just focusing on blacktail um, and then uh, and then salmon. You go further north, and you're going to have people who are you know can get get a moose. You know, you don't have to worry about blackberry. You don't need that much meat because you're going to get so much from a moose. And there are some areas with elk too. So get an elk, get a moose, shoot, you're good to go. Yeah, uh, same thing a, up north with you, caribou. So, um, you get a moose, black, your freezer's full. I gotta assume. <laughs> yeah. So I, th- I think black bear is a is a really fun episode to watch. I think a lot of people from down south want to go up there and experience that. 
um, which is awesome, you know, and, and some locals do it, but I don't think it's, I don't know what the perception is, but if the perception is that, that locals can't wait for spring because of spring bear, I'd say the vast majority are looking forward to, um, you know, the, the, the Kings that start showing a King salmon that start showing up in, in May, um, in June far more than, than, than bear hunting. I can see that. I mean, I don't get, I, I've only attempted bear hunting here in Minnesota a couple of times. I haven't got one yet. Um, and one of the reasons you kind of touched on it that I didn't do it for the longest time is I don't really have that much desire for a bear skin rug. You know, I was mm-hmm. like, eh. And I had heard from other people that bear wasn't that great. They'd call it greasy or gritty or all this other stuff. I've since learned that that's false. Like I've had it from other people that have got it. And I actually really enjoy bear meat. So it's like, huh, all right. Well, that, and that's when I decided to bear hunt. It's like, well, now that I know I'll eat the meat, now it's worth it for me to go out and try to do it. I just wasn't in it for just the hide, you know, if the meat wasn't going to be any good. But when you're up there in Alaska and you've got, just like you said, moose, caribou, deer, salmon, seafood, halibut. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's down down the list of things to do. Uh, I, I can see that, how that might not be the biggest draw. Does that... Is there enough non-resident hunters to effectively kind of manage that population? I mean, if a lot of locals aren't doing it, is that, um, does that kind of create a problem? Unit two is Prince of Wales. And that was, that kind of became kind of a hot spot for, for black bear hunting after there was an article in outdoor life or something like that, or word got out in the late nineties, early two thousands that Prince of Wales Island had a lot of black bears and there were a lot of, and they were really big. And so a lot of, of, of out-of-state people came up and really did a number on the, on the black bear population. But because it is so wild, you know, it wasn't like that the population was, was decimated. You know, it, it, it took out a bunch of bears. But again, you're talking about the third largest island in the United States, 900 miles of coastline, but maybe 5,000 people, you know, spread out. You know, you're not talking about a major, you know, populated area that's that's it's gridded out with 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 uh with roads and highways and stuff and um when it comes to management that's what a lot of people from down south kind of think they they project what they see in their state that that's what's going to happen if you open up tongas to logging or you know the the wolves you have to protect them on prince of wales because they're going to go extinct just like they were in this other state well it's not at all like that so you can have a lot of hunters that come up and and hunt prince of wales island uh, now it's a permit you have or now it's a, a tag you have to draw uh, if you're non-resident but it can handle a lot of hunters but it is fairly expensive and so you don't have this massive um group of people that are coming up there you have a good amount um but there's still plenty of bear and there's plenty of of, of big boars left so um it's certainly not overrun because it's it's wild enough to where you know, things, things are kept in check because it's a lot closer to your normal undulations between, or, you know, your predator and prey. And it just kind of undulates back and forth. And that's just kind of how it, that natural rhythm is a lot more intact there. So it can handle a lot of hunters and it does. Nice. So we have, Minnesota has one of the highest per capita uh, waterfall numbers uh, in the country, as far as duck and goose hunters. We, it's, it's a huge, huge culture here in Minnesota. Um, Is it, do you do much waterfalling 
uh, in Alaska. And we a lot, most of us down here, we dream about going there as far as for more of the trophy aspect for like getting some eiders and and the, the scotters, harlequins, you know, stuff like mm-hmm. that. Like these these fancy looking ducks that we just don't get here in Minnesota. Yeah. Um, that that's what we kind of look look forward to. But and that's definitely on my bucket list as an Alaska duck hunt of some sort. Is there much of that up there? Uh, there's a good amount. Um, not nearly as much cause it coincides with uh deer season. And if that's the primary thing, like you're not going to take a really nice Saturday or Sunday, you know, to go shoot a couple scoters and a Harlequin when, you know, if, it, especially if it's rut, you know, so if you've got a lot of ducks coming through in October, November, why are you duck hunting, man? You got, you got <laughs> deer season. So, um, that's what drives a lot of people out. There are definitely some, some people, um, who are really into duck hunting, a buddy of mine, uh, kind of got me into duck hunting. He was a he was a big uh, ducks unlimited guy and and really into it. And so we've gone out a couple times. And the first time that we were, you know, I, I shot my first harlequin. He's like, people pay thousands of dollars for that. And I was like, cool, this is a really pretty bird. He's like, no, thousands <laughs> yeah. of dollars. Yeah. And I didn't really get it, but you know, I've I've talked to some other um, friends and I've uh, I've done a podcast with a uh, with a guy who lives in Juneau now who moved up from Utah. He's he's a good dude but he was a huge duck hunter and you know, all those things that he couldn't get down South. He was just so excited to be able to have the opportunity to do it. So then you kind of get the value that you put on things that you can't have or aren't accessible to you. So, um, I do some, some duck hunting. I'm a big fan of, um, like mallards and widgeon are just awesome. Um, awesome tasting. I, I, I enjoy the taste, but, uh, you know, you're, surf scoters are, are also very tasty people say that that uh, your sea ducks don't taste nearly as good but yeah i think a scoter is a great tasting duck so you know we'll get some of those on like september tends tends to be um before the rut really starts to kick in late october is the rut so some of those late september early october weekends it's kind of fun to go out there and and i got a couple of geese um this year but we just don't have that expansive space. When I look at some of the pictures of what you guys have and like you're putting out so many decoys and you look <laughs> yeah. at massive groups. Like if, yeah. if I, if we're hanging out and we got a couple of decoys, we're looking at a couple goes maybe per day. We're like, if I get a shot at some geese, that would be great. So if there's 12 geese that happen to, to fly in, I'm stoked. And if I go home with a goose, I'm pretty excited. Um, some people would get, you know, a little bit more into it and come home with more, but you know, it just, if I come home with, with a duck or two, a puddle duck or two or a goose, I'm, I'm happy. If we set up on a rock, then you can sit there all day and you can, you can get a really big body count of, of scoters and, um, um, you know, some of the other stuff that, you know, the sea ducks, but, uh, um, you get a harlequin, they're beautiful, you know, and it's taste amazing. pretty good, but they're pretty small. They know, are. So. They, yeah. They look, they look really small. They, act, they look, I haven't held one in my hands. I don't know for sure, but they, they look. Build wise, to me, they look similar to a buffle head. I don't know yeah, if, yeah. If, if they're that if they're the same size as that, yeah, or maybe slightly same. bigger. But yeah, they are absolutely crazy. Yeah, it's way it's they like look. cartoonish. Like, it's just, it's, yeah, it's absurd. Yeah. It's not even like a, a a beauty that you would reserve for something in nature. Like there, you know, a mule deer standing is a beautiful animal. You know, yeah. and, and an elk, oh, that's a beautiful elk. Look at that thing. You know, 
but then you look at a harlequin duck like, what is that like that's not <laughs> yeah, like they're sticking out like they're not even trying to hide they're just like wow okay yeah. all right but that seems to be a that seems to be a common bird thing where the where the you know it's 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 about it's not about so much survivability as it is breedability like their yeah. their thing is i'm going to be flashy i'm going to get the chicks and then yeah that's how that's going to work and it's more of like this is how good I am at surviving that I can stick out. I don't have to hide. Yeah. And that's why you should breed with me because I'm really good at surviving. It's like, okay, yeah. that seems weird, but sure. <laughs> just the sheer numbers too. Like oh, it's, yeah. it's crazy when you just, when, when you get, um, you know, eight to 10 scoters coming. Oh, sweet, sweet. Like we're really excited about that. So the numbers that you get as far as like, oh. you know, just it's, it's crazy. Yeah, you get into the plains of the Dakotas during the spring migration with the snow geese, and you're talking about thousands. Yeah. Of, you know, you, you literally can have a flock of 5,000 snow geese get right on top of you. I mean, it doesn't happen that often, but when it does, it's an un, it's an undescribable experience. Yeah. It's and it's deafening how loud they are. You know, you're rocking these e-collars out there and you got them cranked to 11 and you can't even hear it. They're just, they drown it out. I think that's one of the biggest pulls of the outdoors and the things that, you know, as, as content makers, podcasters, writers, whatever, we struggle to articulate that feeling of being overwhelmed, but it's something we can all relate to. So when we kind of like stammer and we can't get the words out, like that says enough. It's like, I, what is it like when you can't get your hook down to the bottom without a king salmon taking it. Like what happens when you have to worry about, well, we're going to limit out. We know we're going to limit out with king salmon. So do we want to keep the first two we catch or do we want to wait for bigger ones? Like what a ridiculous problem to have, you know, right. or, or when you're seeing seven or eight black tail bucks in a group, you know, like rather than just like hoping for this one deer that's in this area, it's like, dude, they're everywhere. This is crazy. No one is here and they're popping out. The, the, the rain has stopped. The, the sky has cleared and every little piece of texture, there's a bear or there, there's, there, there's a deer. You don't have to walk a mile to find another deer. They're just everywhere. And that feeling of just, this is absolutely insane. That's what we we're hearing a, an elk bugle. Oh, that's something I've yet to experience. And I, I, that's again, truck. I'm so busy. It's hard. Like I keep saying, that I'm going to do these things and I never do. It kind of goes back to that, you know, talking about it, not doing it, but there's only so much time for everything, but I would love to experience that elk rut at some point in time and just hear that scream, you know, I've just, that would be, I've heard people, I've seen it in videos and I've heard people try to describe it, but going off of that, if there's no way it can, I'm sure it's just that much more intense when you're yeah. witnessing it in person. I heard it, um, uh, two years ago when I was down here, Abby, again, working on the, the PhD at university of Wyoming, she was, uh, she got a, a elk tag and we were camping and middle of the night, it wakes me up. I'm thinking, Oh my gosh, that's it. Like that is, and it's every bit as they say, you can like feel it in your bones. You're like, Oh, whatever, man. That's just people being, mm -hmm. you know, over describing it or using hyperbole. But it's like, no, that's true. Everything about it. Oh my gosh, this is crazy. And I'm thinking that, you know, it's, it's, almost time for us to get up and walk around and start hunting. But it was like 1145. I'm thinking, Oh no, there's no way I'm sleeping the rest of the night. We got six <laughs> hours until sunup. Like, Oh gosh, this is, so I just heard it all night. 
I was not sleeping. And then we wow. get up and of course, you know, it, it stops, but just unbelievable yes. feeling. A couple quick things before we wrap this up. One, just This one just popped into my head. Uh, somebody else was talking to me uh, as far as like some of the fishing out there. It's like the deep fishing for like rock fish and that. Some of those like you can only keep like the limit is like two fish for a certain type of rock fish. Um, how, how do you – and these things are coming up from I'm guessing pretty deep water – how does that work? Like you get your two, what if the first two drops come up with the two rockfish you can only have two of, are you done hunt? Are you done fishing? Cause if you accidentally catch another one, what do you do? Um, well, if you're, so some of these areas, they, they kind of overlap. So, um, typically what you do when you're fishing is you drop to the bottom and reel up. That's called mooching. So when you're mooching, you can pick up a like king salmon tend to be really low, the deep in the water. So you, you, that, and that's your big ticket item. Everyone wants to catch king salmon. So you, you drop down to the bottom, you start reeling up and you work the entire water column. And so king salmon, that's awesome. You can get one, I think this year, if you're non-resident, that's wow. great. Only but one. you can also hook a, a halibut when you're down there, which is a bottom fish and you can keep two of those. So you drop to the bottom, you get a halibut. Awesome. But based on where you're at, you can also pick up rockfish. And certain rockfish, you can keep some that you can't. So you can keep, I think it's six um, black rockfish, which is um, looks like it just a, looks like a black bass. And a lot of times it's called a, a black bash, a black bass. So you can keep six of those, and they're all pretty uniform size, just like a bass. And so you can drop down if you're into them. You can just boom, 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 boom. You're getting your six. You're good to go. Um, you cannot keep in certain areas, um, southeast Alaska. On the inland waters, you can't keep a non-pelagic uh, rockfish like a yellow eye or red snapper. So if you do happen to catch one of those at the bottom, um, you reel it up. You have to attach this thing that decompresses them or helps them get back down. So you've reeled it up from 150 or so or 300, 400 feet. Um, and the swim bladder is looks like an orange in its mouth. And so you attach this little thing and then a weight. And so you you lower it down and so it's able to decompress and then in theory the swim bladder will go back into it and it'll be able to survive and go down there um but that that's definitely something that you don't you know you don't want to have to deal with because red snapper they taste awesome but you know if you can't keep them you know you run the risk in those certain areas where they overlap you're fishing for ling cod which you can get two and they taste great you know you might end up picking up some some rockfish that you can't keep um but when you are in a good rockfish spot and you're you're not really sorting through as far as size wise and so as soon as you get your six um, black bass then you move to a different spot so I you're gotcha. not accidentally picking up a seventh one or you're accidentally getting a, a china rockfish that you can't keep or a quill back or, or something like that I got you that makes sense you just go to a higher or a lower percentage area to run into those fish so it's not a problem. And yeah. that's right. I do it's, remember I fished off of Oregon. I took a chart off of Oregon and they did that. They had that thing. You clip it on there and then it brings it mm. down and at a certain depth it releases it and the fish is gone and you bring, yeah. you bring that device back up. It's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. Some people think that it's just a matter of you feel better about yourself because the fish isn't floating there dead for an eagle to take up, but the thing is dead at, you know, 50 feet and just hanging out there until something else eats it. So um, and we've had a couple. Has there that, been studies of the efficacy of that device? Is it actually working? There are so many things that like it's impossible to really gauge. And so, you know, you hope it does. It seems like it would. But, 
you know, how do you gauge it? How do you study it? You would have to have people like intentionally trying to catch those things and then seeing how it lives. But, you know, how do you really, yeah. how do you really do that? So, uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's something is better than nothing. And so I'm sure it works at least some of the time. So, yeah. so that's one, good. One would hope. The other question I had is, um, and, and maybe this isn't as weird up there as it is down here. You're a teacher that hunts. There's not a lot of that. And I mean, I think you're going to find some of that in like rural America in the lower 48. Uh, but even that, I think it's becoming more and more rare. You're especially not really getting into that within the metropolitan areas. And if they do, they stay pretty tight lipped because you can, you're going to have some shade cast your way. Um, For sure. And not getting into the pros and cons of all that. But when I started listening to your podcast and, you know, you talked about being a, a teacher, I was like, that's a different kind of dynamic you don't really hear about very much. Um, the stereotypical teacher isn't usually an outdoors person. Mm -hmm. So how is that in, in Alaska? Is that pretty people bad an eye at it or not? Uh, no, it's, it's, it's pretty standard. It's one of the nice things about living in Alaska is that there's so many things to do that you don't necessarily have to be the one thing. Like you are a teacher or, you know, you are a Democrat, you are a Republican. It's like, I hunt, I fish, I hike. So all these other things come before, you know, whatever political affiliation or whatever sort of, you know, whatever you're supposed to fit into. So it's, it's pretty nice to, um, you have just a bunch of teachers at the school who also hunt. It's just part of the, part of the culture. Um, students that hunt too. When, um, this last year when we started school and we started at a hundred percent capacity, but then we had a couple cases of COVID. So we were at 50% capacity. So you had kids, um, half the alphabet was there on Monday, Wednesday, the other half of the alphabet was there on Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday was an office hour day, which during October, November ended up being hunting day. And so, you know, when I show up to, to school on Monday, some of the kids in the first half of the alphabet, they're like, Mr. Lone, did you get to do this this weekend? <laughs> That's awesome. You know, and, <laughs> so, you know, you had the kids that are hunting, you know, um, I shot my first bear not too long ago when I was teaching, um, um, at Ketchikan high school. And one of my journalism students said, you hadn't shot a bear before now. And it was a 17 year old girl. She was like, my teacher hadn't shot a bear yet. Cause she got her first bear when she was <laughs> sure. like 13. Yeah. Um, so it's really nice for like stereotypes. So you don't have to have these, you know, I'm a cheerleader. So I have to look like a cheerleader and act like a cheerleader or I'm a, I'm a, you know, it's just, it's just some of that, that stereotypical, you know, insecurities that people might have. And I, I taught high school in California and um, there was a girl in my sophomore English class who wrote an article about, or wrote a, a, a paper about, um, the thing that she loved to do most was go elk hunting with her dad. And I was like, Oh, this is such, this is great. You know, it's, it's father daughter bonding. You know, you have that parent connection, which is so important for the growth and development of a kid. It's a, it's a special visceral experience that they have. But in the next paragraph, she was explaining how she didn't feel that she could reveal that to her friends because she felt like she would be judged. You know, she was a, a cheerleader and so she had to fit this the cheerleader stereotype and that was i was so sad and i thought i, I told her i said hey if you, they're really your friends they're not going to care that you hunt like right theirs and as, as a senior she came back and said mr lund you were right you know my friend said okay that's cool you know no big deal but it's nice to live in a community that that doesn't judge you based on that i'm sure some people don't like hunting i'm sure people you know are anti-hunting but they get it you know, it's like, I live in Ketchikan, you know, people are going to go hike up the mountain. They're going to, they're going to shoot some deer and they're going to eat it. 
Well, I was, that's fine. <laughs> you know, and that's, being it's, a, it's not. Being an anti-hunter on that island, I think, has got to be an uphill <laughs> battle. <laughs> You're yeah. surrounded by it as a culture. You know, I think it's, uh, not to get into a, the, the muddy waters of this, but I, I think people have the luxury in the lower 48 and the, um, oh, not to put it mildly, but they're privileged to be anti-hunting because they don't, they, they've, they're throwing away meals. Um, they're not, yeah. you know, like it's, it's, you get, you get the benefit of being able to be anti-hunting or you, you have the privilege of the, the freedom, the opportunity to be a vegan, if you will, not to throw them under the yeah. bus, but it's like, I'm fine with anybody that chooses a vegan lifestyle as long as you know, like it's a choice. And thankfully we live in such a prosperous society that you can mm -hmm. choose your diet that yeah. specifically because Absolutely. there are lots of places and a lot of cultures in this world. You don't have that option. You know, mm -hmm. you got to eat. It ain't. Yeah. And we, we started off this podcast talking about facts that we didn't really consider to, you know, get depth about. And that's part of it too, is there are some people who, they just don't necessarily know how it works. They're anti-hunting, but they eat meat. Right. And it's not to be like, well, see, look at you, hypocrite. It's just like, no, this is how things actually right. work. Let's just consider this. And like, what's better for the world? If you're saying that the meat industry is bad, but you still eat meat. Okay, well, what is healthier than me hiking up a mountain and, and taking a deer myself and bringing it home? That reduces my carbon footprint, which would mean that that's better for, for the earth. And so if you don't eat meat because you think it's bad for the earth, well, my carbon footprint is less because I walked up a mountain and I brought back a deer. So I brought back my food. So there's just that playing out of, of the whole situation and all the facts. And um, I think sometimes, you know, we hunters don't represent our, our lifestyle really well. Um, but, you know, I think, I think it's, it's definitely there. There's a lot more to it when people really understand it. They think, oh, okay, well, I don't. I don't know if I could shoot a deer. I don't really, you know, want to shoot a deer, but I get why you do, why you do, and I understand that. Um, and I think that's what a lot of the communities in Ketchik in in Alaska are like. You know, I I don't want to pull the trigger. Like I I I cannot look at a deer and I cannot take its life. But you know, I'm I'm not going to begrudge anybody else for doing that, which is really nice to be part of that community rather than someone who doesn't understand how things work, who you know puts money toward you know, saving predators over, over, over deer or, you know, anti-hunter or this or that, you know, just kind of understanding and educating yourself and then saying, oh, well, I get it. I'm, I'm anti-hunting, but I'm not going to be overbearing about it. I'm not going to try to stop you from hunting. I'm just, my preferences and my freedom is, it allows me to just not hunt. That's a choice. Well, thankfully, I mean, Listen, there's 330 million people in this country. If every one of them hunted, we'd have a huge problem with game management. I mean, there's just not right. <laughs> as as abundant as our game is. It ain't that abundant. I mean, and yeah. I don't require everybody to be a hunter. It's just more of a hopefully an acknowledgement, an understanding of it. Um, you know, and there there can be a big, long philosophical conversation about that. As far as kind of what you said, you know, it's like, well, they want to be friendly to the environment. Well. I don't, I don't think being vegan is, if you look at how your food is processed, uh, giant Certain swaths health. of monocrops that yeah. are being plowed up, harvested with big giant diesel engines, 
displacing mm-hmm. wildlife, killing all sorts of small mammals and birds and insects and amphibians and bugs and everything else so that you can get this one particular crop. Whereas, mm-hmm. again, I go into the woods or the mountains, I harvest one animal with little to no impact on the actual environment, and I eat multiple, multiple, multiple meals off of that one animal. Yeah. Like, who has the greater impact here? Like, it's, def- it's, it's definitely not me. <laughs> yeah, and it's not about being right or wrong or I'm morally better or not. Like, we're all... Right. Like, it's so complex. It's just about coming to that place of, if you want to be vegan, that's fine, right? You know, like, you're making that choice, and I'm assuming that you are making this choice. It's going to make you happier. It's going to make you healthier, and you know all the details about it. So, you know, as long as you don't say vegan is better than hunting, it's like, no, if you make the choice, that's fine. Right. right? And I'm going to choose to hunt, right? I don't think I'm better than you because, yeah. you know, I'm a hunter and you're a vegan. It's just we get it. We have the opportunity to make our choices. We're making our, our choices based on, on an understanding of how things work and how complex everything is because we are all hypocrites, you know, just because we don't want to mine or log here does it that's going to happen somewhere else, right? I have a cell phone. That means that I'm participating in mining of whatever. It's like, I mean, there's, there's blood on all of our hands. It's, it doesn't mean that we don't care. It doesn't mean because I'm a hunter, I don't care about animals. Um, it's just, it's just way more complex than, than people make it, uh, make it look on social media. Yeah. It's, it's heavily, heavily nuanced. And, and to go back to your point, it's only a problem when it becomes a moral argument, when someone's trying to take a, a certain moral high ground. And I would never take a moral high ground, at least I hope I don't, where it's like, I hunt, so I'm more, I, I, I have an actual lesser impact than you, so that makes me better. It's not so much that. Like, I bring that up just to draw the comparison. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, you, you, you think you're doing this for the environment, but if you look at it in its entirety – you're really not. And you're coming at me from a moral high ground and you're berating me for being a hunter and taking this wild life. But really I'm one and done. I shot a deer. I'm done. That's one deer out of the population. It's going to feed me for a long time. And you're, you're, you're feeding yourself on a, a year long process of mono crop, (laughs) large scale farming. Like who has the impact here? And I'm not saying that I'm better. I'm just saying like you came at me. So it's like, in reality, and I don't like again. Yeah. I, if you want to be vegan, knock yourself out. Like I don't, I don't care. Like this, yeah. your diet has no effect on me. <laughs> Eat whatever you want. Yeah. And who who puts, who puts the money and the time toward conserving and bringing animals back? Right. That's hunters. The Rocky Mountain yeah. Elk Foundation. How much have they done toward restoring habitat for elk? Uh, Ducks Unlimited. Right. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable impact on habitat. Um, for the hunters. So like they're doing so much, they're putting the money where their mouth is. It's not just a matter of, of, I don't like hunting. Hunting is stupid. Save the ducks. Right. Okay. You've well, made a post. What does that yeah, to actually help? That doesn't right? do anything. Um, hunters bringing back, you know, Teddy Roosevelt with, um, you know, when he was hunting bison, there weren't many bison left. He's like, dude, we got to save these things. These things are amazing and incredible. Right. You know, if we look at the history, it's been hunting groups that have, and you can say that, you know, hunters just want to keep them alive so they can hunt them. Well, yeah, but also, you know, like it's it's not just it's just for that perspective. Like hunters have put a lot of time in there. Now I'm talking about the hunters that don't just say, "Well, I'm a I, I'm a conservationist because I buy my license." It's the people who are participating in Ducks Unlimited, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, um, who are helping to restore habitat, who are helping to educate other people about um, the value. 
of of habitat and how we have to preserve habitat. If we don't, we're gonna lose these animals. Right. Not just because I want steaks, but also because it's you know it's it's the right thing to do. So, even, um, even but that gets lost in the conversation. Yeah, and even if the only motivation was I want more animals so I can kill them, well, wouldn't the overall product be more animals? That's still like don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? To use that 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 cliche it's like what what is the motivation you know and when you really nail people down to it if you get into a, a debate with an anti-hunter um what it comes down to is they have an inherent problem with somebody taking enjoyment from mm, from yeah, taking that. Sure. that that's the thing that they have a problem with you know the, the easy argument for that is you know they ban mountain lion hunting in california well the same amount of lions die they just you're not now it costs the state to shoot however many hundred mountain yeah. lions a year versus people paying into yeah, it and and they're fine yeah. with that they're fine with that because the thing that they had it wasn't the fact that the animals were dying it was that somebody was choosing to do it and in their eyes was taking some joy in it that's that's the problem they had so it was yeah. it's it's more of a um, a religious thing, basically. <laughs> they they turn it into a religion. Anyways, yeah. they argue it as it was a religion. It was once said, I think it was Rush Limbaugh that said, it's like, if you want to save an endangered species, have a hunting season for it. And it seems pretty simple and extreme yeah. and seems um, oxymoronic, but he's actually right. I mean, because they'll preserve mm -hmm. the, the people that are interested in it will do whatever it takes, spend an enormous amount of money and for as much demonizing of the rich European and American businessmen that go and hunt and trophy hunt, thank God we have rich businessmen that like to do that. Otherwise, these animals yeah. would have no value. All they would no. be, there would be a detriment to the people trying to farm in Africa. And you wouldn't, like, it's the lens in which we view them. And I think we would not they don't see the bigger picture it's like thank god we have people willing to spend tens of thousands hundreds of thousand dollars so that they can have this whatever animal on their wall thankfully we have somebody that's willing to do that because without them you don't you, you're not going to have rhinos you're not going to have lions yeah i think part of it is we we do a, we're really bad at admitting that we are wrong or maybe we didn't think about certain things and that's just not anti-hunters they need to think more about the way things really are it's like the humans are in general and so i think when some people are confronted with those with that fact it's hard for people to say ah oh, man that's a good point you know you've changed my mind I, I i've switched because then you're not you know if you do treat these sort of issues as like your religion like this is your value this is where you get your self-worth and your identity then it shocks you to your core if something is different than what you believed or what you thought and so you know we're resistant of that and i think we do that across all things you know politically oh, sure. there's yeah. zero chance that that donald trump could have any good idea or do anything right same thing with with biden like there's zero chance that there's any way that he could do anything right it's like you know, a good idea is a good idea, right? right. You know, there's something that's going to be contradictory to you. And so sometimes in your life, you might be like 52% convinced this is the right thing, which means that you're pretty open to the other argument, right? Yeah. Like, okay, I'm, I'm not sure this is, this is super complex, but you know, I think maybe I want to save the mountain lions, but maybe the best way to save the mountain lions is, or, you know, I don't want to killed by hunters, but maybe that is better than have, you know, the fish and game do it.
you know, and I, I think that being able to admit that the things are a little bit different, um, you know, it's, it's something that we're not good at, well, but I think the, the better we are at it, um, the better off we'll be. It's human mind and the human ego. And that's, you know, it, it's all human nature. I think it's what we got to keep in mind when we're debating or arguing with anybody from a different walk of life. And I just think a lot of people, mm-hmm. and I think social media exacerbates this, but a lot of people want to, they don't want to be correct. They want to be right. If that makes sense. Yeah. They, they, it's like, it's not about facts. It's not about what's the correct answer. It's like, I want to walk away from here feeling right or at least righteous. You know, it's, it's, yeah, I did the mic drop. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, it, and it's all about one liners and stuff you read on a bumper sticker. It's not these deeper conversations. And thank God we have podcasts for stuff like this. Cause I think you can get deeper into the weeds and <laughs> exactly. you can, and you can get that nuance. And, and I've opened up my platform to, um, non hunters and stuff. And no one's ever taken me up on it. Like there's a Facebook page I follow called Minnesota naturalist. And I, I, I threatened it in my mind quit it every day because it's just it's 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 full of of people that have very negative connotations on hunting and hunters and uh i've i've put it on the the page a few times like hey come on the show let's have a let's have a conversation about this let's get to understand each other you know and they never they don't take you up on it because i think a lot of them know in their heart of hearts that they're coming from a place of no factual background and they're they don't they don't want to be wrong they don't want to be you know they're yeah. it's blissful ignorance you know i it's it's easier yeah. for me to to blast a hunter walk away from my computer and feel good about myself than is actually do the hard work and some of that hard work is admitting yeah, you sure. might not be right you know you might not have the right whatever but this conversation could go for hours and as much as I would love yep, to do forever. that, I got stuff I got to get done today. So, Jeff, thanks for taking all the time and coming on my show, and thanks for having me on your show. I'll definitely send uh, my people over and check out the Mediocre Alaskan Podcast. And where else can Excellent. they? Thanks, where else, yeah, where else can they find you? Um, you can find me at the Alaska Lund on Instagram or um, um, – the Mediocre Alaskan. Uh, you can also buy my book, A Miserable Paradise, which uh, chronicles uh, 2020 from the eyes of a Ketchikan resident. So it was hunting and fishing and outdoors and all that stuff while teaching during COVID. So you can check that out and uh, you can buy that on Amazon or at uh, miserableparadise.com. I might be you're sold out of copies, out. but uh, Amazon has copies. <laughs> I looked, so you can you're sold out. <laughs> Actually, is there an audio version? Uh, no, uh, there is. There is not. I've thought about reading and people always ask about that i'm like uh you know gilbert godfrey or fran drescher weren't uh weren't available so uh <laughs> as life in alaska yeah. that's be, right that'd be pretty funny yeah. that would that's you know what you should have somebody do that <laughs> somebody with a very distinct yeah, voice no it would be i i, I asked only because i was looking for it um i was gonna I just don't have as much time to to read so i was like i always listen to podcasts like when i work and stuff i was like well mm-hmm. i'll just if it's on audio, I'll download it and consume it that way. But it didn't have it, so it's just checking. No, maybe I'll yeah. just call maybe you up we- at night and you can read me a couple of chapters at every night and put me to bed. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll see. I wouldn't hold my breath on that one. Yeah, it could be a money making. Could be money making. You could do it. Uh, offer to serve like the old um, p- per minute. You know, like the psychic hotline back in the day. People could call you up and you can, you know, read them a chapter and. 
lulled him to sleep. <laughs> I could maybe uh, one of my students. I there could uh, have them for uh, for a grade. That's uh, terribly unethical, and I would not actually do that. But maybe that's. <laughs> or is it yeah. <laughs> teaching yeah. good communication yeah. skills? I'm sure there's a way you could twist that. But all right, yeah, maybe after graduate. Yeah, do that. absolutely. But. All right, Jeff. Thanks a lot. This has been fun. Thanks. We'll talk take to care. You.